Well, I invite you to please stand as we read the Word of God together, and open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. Mark 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 20. Again, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him any more, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him. And the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business? Do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain, the demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine, so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Pray with me. Father, we too stand amazed at the power and authority that Jesus possesses even over a legion of demons. We thank you for your mercy upon this man as Jesus himself said to this man, great things the Lord has done for him and mercy from God has been shed upon him. We think of this man, how he had an unclean spirit and how his life was one of complete misery. And by virtue of the demons, he possessed a power that was unrivaled by men even able to break chains and shackles and was unable to be subdued. And yet here we find him running to Jesus, bowing down in utter humility. We thank you, O God, that though this world with devils filled and though they would threaten to undo us, that we do not fear because we belong to the Lord of all, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, Jesus Christ. 
We thank you that all authority in heaven and in earth belong to Christ and that everything is in subjection to his power. We thank you, Father, also for your saving mercy in our lives. We are well aware of our sin on a daily basis. It is there. It is in us. And so we are incredibly thankful that Christ is not only stronger than Satan and his demons, but he is stronger than our sin and death. So we collectively crown him Lord of all. We confess him Lord of all, Lord over the grave, Lord over demons, Lord over every enemy to the human soul and to God himself. We pray that Jesus Christ would be exalted in our midst, that we would see his power, his supremacy, his sovereignty, that you would speak these things to us in a very pronounced way that we would leave with an even higher view of Christ than we had when we came here today. And we pray this in the high name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I am the only one not sick in my family, and so the Lord must really want us to hear this message today. I'll probably get sick this afternoon, but that will be fine with me as long as we're able to spend time in worship today. The title of this message is The Christian Spiritual Warfare Part 2, Knowing the Enemy. When you think about the charismatic movement There are a number of things that come to your mind right away, such as speaking in tongues, healing, new revelations from God, the prosperity gospel, and name it and claim it, theology. But there is something else that pervades the charismatic movement. It is the belief in what could be called the sovereignty of Satan. The sovereignty of Satan. To illustrate this point, I want to read a letter to you that was written by a lady who left a charismatic church along with a group of people who also left that same charismatic church, and they ended up at John MacArthur's church. And here is the letter that she wrote to Pastor MacArthur. It is a very powerful letter. You know, we lived all our life in this movement, that is the charismatic movement. And one thing dominates that movement, and it is that Satan is sovereign. If you get sick, it was the devil. If your child gets sick, it was the devil. The devil made your child sick. And even if your child dies, Satan somehow got the victory. If your spouse, your husband, or your wife gets cancer, that's the devil that did that. If you had an accident, the devil did that. If you lost your job, the devil did that. If things didn't go the way you wanted them to in your company or your family, and you wound up with a loss of job or a divorce, the devil did all of that. The devil has to be bound, and so you have got to learn these formulas because you have got to bind the devil or he is really going to control everything in your life. The devil dominates everything. And he is assisted by the massive force of demons who also have to be dealt with. And you have got to do everything you can to try to overcome these spiritual powers. And they are invisible and they are fast and they are powerful. And they are really impossible for you to deal with on any permanent basis So it is an ongoing, incessant struggle with the devil. I lived with heart palpitations, panic attacks, anxiety, frightening dreams, waking up in the middle of the night terrified that the devil might be doing something to my child while he's lying in bed. Just living in this constant terror of what Satan was doing, 
That when the wrong guy gets elected, Satan put him there. That when the society goes a certain direction, it's all under the control of Satan. Satan is really the sovereign of everything, and it is really difficult to get control of him. Even God is up there wringing his hands trying to get control of this deal. I lived with the fear and terror because I took my church seriously. I came to Grace Community Church, and one thing that just totally shocked me, you said the fact is God is in control of everything. When you get sick, or when somebody gets cancer, or when something goes wrong in the world, or when you lose your job, that is not outside the tolerances of God. That is not outside the purposes of God. In fact, God works all things together for good. This was absolutely earth-shaking. This was a total change for us, and the difference we found was so powerful that it totally changed the way we think about life. That is the issue. We do not believe Satan is in charge of history. We believe God is in charge. That changes everything. That takes all the panic out. I can honestly say that I have never had a panic attack. I have never awakened in the night worrying what the devil might be doing because God has not only conquered Satan, but God has put Satan under our feet, it says, and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. So we know God controls history, and this might surprise you. The devil is God's servant. Wow, what a letter. That is an awesome letter. And beloved, it reminds us of some wonderful, liberating, joyful news, and that is this, that Satan is not sovereign over this world, rather God himself is. And nowhere in the Bible are Christians told to live in the fear of the devil or his demons, and that is because God is sovereign over all, including Satan and his demons. Now, by way of review, the first step that we are taking to prepare ourselves for spiritual warfare is to know the enemy. In warfare, it is imperative that you be able to identify the enemy and know what he is like, and that is what we are doing with the devil. And we are doing this by considering five biblical realities about Satan. We began this last time, and this is all for you in your bulletin on the sermon note page, beginning with point number one, the origin of Satan. And we said last time that Satan is one of the innumerable number of angels that God created on the first day of creation week. And then we looked at the second biblical reality, the fall of Satan. And we saw that at some point after creation week, that is Genesis 1.31, and before the events of Genesis 3, there was a revolt in heaven against God that was led by Satan, and one-third of the angels joined in this rebellion. And as a result, Satan and his angels became fallen angels, also known as demons. And then we saw, number three, the works of Satan. We said that the character and the works of Satan are entirely evil, entirely sinister. He is the most skilled liar in the world. He is the greatest mass murderer in human history. He is the one responsible for deceiving our first parents into sin and death and destruction. He's involved in a variety of works, but the work that he most often pursues is spiritual deception. He is ever and always about blinding people from the gospel, preventing them from understanding the gospel. And for those of us who do embrace the gospel by the grace of God, he employs a variety of schemes to oppose us. And then fourthly, we saw the power of Satan, and we said there are two things you need to understand about his power. Number one, it is extraordinary power. The Bible describes him as the ruler of this world, the god of this age. He controls the evil world system that is opposed to God. But secondly, his power is limited. 
And by that, what we mean is that he is not equal with God. He is not omniscient, omnipotent, or omnipresent. And also his power is restricted. That is to say, he cannot do anything with his power without the permission by God himself. And so again, Satan is not sovereign. God is sovereign. We can even say it this way as Luther did. The devil is God's devil. He is sovereign over the devil. Well, this brings us to the fifth and final reality that we are going to consider about our enemy, the devil. Roman numeral five, the defeat of Satan. In the pages of the Old Testament, Satan is a relatively minor figure. And by that, what I mean is that we read about the devil in only a few passages in the Old Testament. But when we come to the New Testament, Satan becomes a much more prominent figure along with his demons. And this is especially true in relationship to the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's something that's very important to note. In every encounter, in every encounter that Jesus had with Satan and with his demons, he was victorious without a single exception. And we see this in three big ways in the New Testament. Letter A, here's the first big way that Jesus is victorious, his victory over temptation. And for this, we need to turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, which is the famous account of Jesus in the wilderness, his temptation in the wilderness. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you that at this point in Jesus' life, he has just begun his public ministry. In Matthew 3, he is baptized by John the Baptist. That is the commencement of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then following his baptism, the very first event in the ministry of Christ was not to be taken to the temple in Jerusalem to be praised by the people and to be celebrated in terms of his ministry, but rather it was to be taken into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is the very first event in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And there's something that you need to understand about what is happening here. What Genesis 3 is to the Old Testament, Matthew 4 is to the New Testament. In other words, Genesis 3 and Matthew 4 are very similar in that they both involve a personal attack by the devil in the form of a temptation. And in both cases, listen carefully, the implications are enormous and far-reaching. The scope of what is happening in Genesis 3 and Matthew 4 is far and wide. In Genesis 3, as you know, the devil was successful in leading Adam and Eve to sin, which resulted in the death and condemnation of the human race. And so now, in Matthew 4, what would happen with the second Adam? The Bible identifies Jesus as the second Adam. What will happen with him? The first Adam fell into sin. Would the second Adam also fall into sin? Beloved, you need to understand what is at stake here in Matthew chapter 4. If the devil is successful in seducing Jesus to sin, what is the implication of that? He is no longer qualified to be our Savior. If the devil can seduce Jesus to sin, Jesus becomes a sinner, and sinner, a sinner cannot save sinners. And so the implications, as I said, are enormous. They are far-reaching. They are vast. Now, please notice in our text that the devil is not the one who grabs Jesus by the arm and is dragging him out into the wilderness. It is the Spirit of God who is doing this. The Spirit of God descends from heaven at the baptism of Jesus upon him and then leads him into the wilderness for the very specific purpose 
of being tempted by the devil. Note verse 1 of Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, not the devil, but by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In Mark's version, Mark 1.12, it says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So there is no time to be spared following the baptism of Christ. The very first event, the Spirit of God is in a hurry, if you will, to drive Jesus into this situation. It is a profound scene. And what we have here is a divine appointment under the sovereign control of God in which Jesus would go head-to-head, if you will, with the enemy, with Satan himself. And according to verse 2 of Matthew 4, Jesus was severely disadvantaged. Matthew writes, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Beloved, do you realize that within a period of 40 days of fasting that it is possible for someone to starve to death? People die in conditions like this. And so here is Jesus in verse 2, extremely weak, profoundly weak, very vulnerable. The text says he was hungry. And that cannot communicate to us the depth of the hunger that Jesus must have felt going 40 days without food. Well, guess who understood the vulnerability of Christ at this moment? It is the devil. He understood the weakness, the hunger of Jesus. He understood the vulnerable state that he was in. And so he very skillfully, very craftily craftily shapes and presents his first temptation at the very point where Jesus appeared to be weak. His hunger. Look at verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, frankly, on the surface, that doesn't sound very sinister. Where is the sin in that? He's appealing to something that is God-given, something that is innate, that is hunger for food. Jesus has a need for food. The devil says, Jesus, you're hungry. This is patently obvious. You have gone 40 days without food. Enough is enough. Now eat. You are the Son of God. You have the power to turn stones into bread. Do that. So what's the sin? What is so sinister about this? Well, it is a subtle way of casting doubt upon the Father's care of Jesus. That's what he's doing. The devil, in effect, is saying, Jesus, if the Father really cares about you, he would not allow you to remain in this condition. And so he is attacking Jesus at the point of trusting his father for his earthly provision. But Jesus responds masterfully in verse 4, but he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so Jesus answers this first temptation with a no. Rather than alleviate his hunger through miraculous power, he chooses to continue to go without food until the Father determines when he should eat. And he also affirms that there is something more important than food. It is the Bible, the Word of God. So the devil then presents a second temptation, which goes like this. Jesus, you say that you trust in God the Father, and that is good. I commend you for that trust. But now what I want you to do is to prove it. I want you to demonstrate how much you really, in fact, trust God the Father. In verse 5, Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You notice what the devil is doing? Jesus quotes a verse to combat the first temptation, and so the devil does likewise here in his second temptation. The devil quotes the Bible back to Jesus. You know what is true about the devil? One thing you need to know about your enemy is he knows the Bible. 
He is a Bible scholar. If he were in Awana, he would have more bucks than any of the other children. He knows the Bible. But listen, here's what he does with the Bible. He twists it. He on purpose uses very bad hermeneutics. This is on purpose. This is his malicious intent. This is his evil coming out. He very subtly misuses the Bible. The scripture says that God will protect his people. That is a fact. But this does not mean that you deliberately put God to the test. So says Jesus in verse 7. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written. In other words, you have misunderstood. You have misapplied the intent of what you've just quoted, Satan. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so Jesus comes back quoting scripture again. Well, now the devil is over two. But he is persistent and presents a third temptation in verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. This time the devil appeals to the reign of Christ, to the reign of Christ. In effect, the devil says, instead of having to wait to assume your dominion over the world, you can have it now. I will give it to you on one condition, one small condition, worship me. And you don't have to worship me forever. You don't have to worship me for even five minutes. Just bow down for one moment and render me worship. Well, there are several problems here. First of all, the devil is lying. He's lying. He is a liar. He is the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He does not have the authority to give all the kingdoms of the world and their glory to Jesus because they're not his to give away. He does not own the kingdoms of the world. God owns them. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord and all that it contains. And secondly, the devil is trying, listen carefully, to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. He wants to avoid this. You can have glory without suffering. The reverse order of God's plan, which is suffering and then glory to follow. And then thirdly, worship belongs exclusively to God. As Jesus affirms in verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Serve him only. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So in this epic head-to-head battle between Jesus and Satan, Jesus is victorious. And everything about this passage demonstrates the sovereignty of God over Satan. It is the Holy Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness. This is not the devil's work, the Spirit's work. Jesus resists all three temptations, even though he was in a very weak and vulnerable state. And then Jesus commands Satan to leave in verse 11, and he does. He obeys because he is under the control of Christ. Well, there's a second area, a second big area in the New Testament where we find Jesus' power over Satan and its letter B in our outline Jesus' mastery over demons. So beyond the head-to-head conflict at the very outset of his ministry, we have letter B, a very common part of his ministry. And please keep in mind that the demons, they act as the agents of Satan. And so if Jesus has mastery over the demons, he also has mastery over their leader, the devil himself. The way Jesus demonstrated his mastery, his complete mastery over the demons was by casting them out of people who were demon-possessed. And beloved, this was a major and regular part of the ministry of Christ. I want to begin by turning to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1 with some general references to this part of the ministry of Jesus. Mark 1, beginning in verse 32. 
And I want you to note the stress that Mark places upon the power of Jesus to cast out demons and the frequency with which he did so. Mark 1.32, when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. What an amazing scene. The whole city is there at the door of the house where Jesus is, all the sick, all the demon-possessed. Verse 34, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. He had the power to shut them up and to cast them out. He demonstrates his mastery over them. In verse 39, And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. There were demons in those synagogues. They were synagogues of Satan. There were demon-possessed people in those synagogues. We have accounts of that in the Gospels. And even in that setting, he would cast demons out of people who were possessed by them. In chapter 3 of Mark's Gospel, another sort of general reference to this power of Christ in this regard, Mark 3 and verse 10 For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. I mean, there's an amazing popularity with Jesus because of his power. Verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. So look at all this conflict between demons as they possess individuals as they come into contact, if you will, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in addition to these general references, and there are many others, not just the ones we looked at, but in addition to these, we have some major accounts in the Gospels of Jesus casting out demons, and let's look at one of those in Mark chapter 1, trying to keep it easy, staying within the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1 and verse 21, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Note the theme of authority, the authority of Christ. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. So notice a few things in this text, and this is just one example of many in the Gospels. First of all, the demons knew who Jesus was. In verse 24, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? They knew his earthly identity, Jesus of Nazareth. They also knew his heavenly identity, the Holy One of God. One thing about Satan, as I mentioned before, that is also true of demons is this. They have good theology. They have sound Christology. In fact, demons oftentimes have better theology than seminary professors. They are affirming the deity of Christ, the Son of God. They understand that they are looking at the divine Son of God. They understand his identity. They also understood that Jesus, the Holy One of God, was going to destroy them. Look at verse 24. Have you come to destroy us? They know that what awaits them is their ultimate destruction, and they want to know, are you going to do it now? It's not a matter of, are you going to destroy us, but when? And we find this kind of question repeated in the accounts where Jesus is encountering demon-possessed people in the Gospels. And again, part of the point of this text is to demonstrate the authority of Christ, his authority in his teaching, 
and his authority over the demons. This is how the people respond. They're amazed. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. And what do they do? They obey. Without exception. Without fail. He shuts them up. He casts them out. And they obey. Without exception. Well, there's something else that we read about in the Gospels related to Jesus' mastery over demons, and that is this. He delegated his power to his disciples to cast out demons. Look at Mark 3. Let me show you just a few examples of this. Mark 3, verse 13. This is where he chooses the 12 apostles. Verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. He was going to train them. They were in the master's seminary. He was going to train them personally. He was going to send them out to preach. And then verse 15, what else would they do? And to have authority to cast out the demons. Jesus has that kind of authority, and he delegates that authority to the 12. Look at chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark in verse 7. This is when he is sending the 12 out. Mark 6, 7. And he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Verse 13 of Mark 6. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So what was part of the ministry of Jesus was casting out demons. And what was part of the ministry of the apostles was also casting out demons. Now turn to the Gospel of Luke for one more example of this because there's a very interesting statement that I want you to see that Jesus makes. In Luke 10, we have... 70 disciples that Jesus is now sending out. So this is much broader than just the 12. In Luke 10 and verse 1, it says, Now after this the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. So he sends the 70 out in 35 pairs. And notice as we get to a little further into Luke 10 in verse 17, notice when they return what they say, the 70 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. It's not their power, it is the authority of Christ that they are being subject to. And now notice verse 18. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Wow. What an amazing statement. Now, Jesus is either referring to the original fall of Satan, because Christ being eternal, preexistent, he was around, of course, when the fall of Satan took place. That may be what he's talking about. I saw the fall of Satan. Or it may be talking about the demons being cast out of these people by the 70, and it was a picture of Satan falling. And either way, it is a tremendous picture of the mastery of Christ over demons. They are subject to him. And now, with all of this in mind, amazingly, Jesus was often, and I note often, he was often accused by his enemies of being demon-possessed. Isn't that amazing? That sounds ludicrous. The Gospels continue to show this time and time again And I want to show you one instance how Jesus responded to these kinds of accusations in Matthew chapter 12. I know we're flipping around a lot, keeping you busy. Matthew 12, this is one instance in which Jesus was accused of being demon-possessed. And let's see how he responds. Matthew 12, look at verse 22. Here's the healing. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, the demon possession had made him that way, blind and mute. He was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw a complete healing, instant healing, instant expulsion of the demon. And following this is the accusation. Look at verse 23. All the crowds were amazed 
and we're saying this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Is this possibly the Messiah? But when the Pharisees, in verse 24, heard this, they said, this man cast out demons, how? By the Spirit of God? By the power of God? No. Only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They don't deny the power of Christ, the supernatural activity of Christ, but what they attribute to Christ is not the power of God to do what he does, but rather the power of the devil. Here is a man who is demon-possessed, who is energized by Satan, and that is how he does what he does. And so, and so now notice in verse 25 how Jesus so skillfully responds. Verse 25 opens, and knowing their thoughts, he knew exactly what they were thinking. He doesn't, he doesn't become aware of this because he hears them talking about it. He knows their thoughts, and then he speaks. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. So if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So what does Jesus say about their accusation? It's absurd. It's utterly foolish. It's illogical. It's not rational. You know why? Satan does not attack his own kingdom. Al-Qaeda does not bomb Al-Qaeda, to give you a modern picture. If I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, then Satan's house is divided. It cannot stand. That is absurd. It is foolish. So notice what he says in verse 27. If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. And then verse 28, look at what he says. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, Jesus says, my ability to cast out demons demonstrates one thing loud and clear, and that is this, that the kingdom of God is in your midst. And I am doing these things by the power of the Holy Spirit, not the devil. And then he gives this tremendous picture in verse 29. It is a picture of a home invasion. And it powerfully demonstrates what he is teaching them. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? What is Jesus saying in that little parable? He is saying this, that every time he casts a demon out, it is like breaking into the devil's house who is the strong man and he binds the strong man, he eliminates his power and he takes what is his. The devil is the strong man, but Christ is preeminently stronger than him. He has the power to bind him and to take what is his. And this, beloved, again demonstrates the complete mastery that Christ has over Satan and his demons. Well, now, thirdly, let us see. We come to the final big way that we see in the New Testament the sovereignty of Christ the mastery of, of, of Christ over Satan. And this is so important. Jesus' conquest over Satan. According to the Gospel of Luke, following the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, it says that the devil left him until an opportune time. He has to leave at that moment because Jesus commands him to go away. And he is subject to Christ, but he is not finished. He comes back to him at an opportune time, and I believe that that opportune time is most fully developed when it comes to the cross. And we begin to see this in the Gospel of Matthew in verse 16. And I want you to turn there with me for a minute. Matthew 16, verse 21. This is a major turn in the ministry of Jesus. And I remember this so well when we were going through the gospel of Matthew. I know that was a few years ago when we were in this chapter, but it was so moving to me what Matthew writes about the ministry of Jesus. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, at this very point in his ministry, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must... That he must, underline that word, circle that word, that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. This is the divine must. This is the sovereign purpose of God for Christ. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer at the hands of the evil rulers who were there. He must die. He must be crucified. This is God's plan for him. But then in verse 22, Peter, he is the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth because he's always sticking his foot in his mouth. But we can appreciate the zeal that he has in verse 22 to protect our Lord as it were. Look at what he says. Peter took him aside. He literally takes Jesus and talks to him privately like he's scolding him almost. He began to rebuke him. Can you imagine rebuking the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has mastery over all things? And he says, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You will never go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the elders and be killed. I will not allow it. I love you too much to see you endure such a travesty. Well, now notice in verse 23 what Jesus says. Powerful words. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Peter. Is that what he says? Jesus understands that when he hears the voice of Peter, there's actually somebody else speaking through Peter very cleverly. Get behind me, Satan. He's not saying that Peter is actually Satan. What he is saying is that when Peter said what he did in verse 22, he unwittingly was acting as a spokesman for Satan. He was communicating the wishes of the devil. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. You are not communicating the will of God. It is not the will of God for me to avoid suffering and even crucifixion. This is the second time that we know of that Satan tries to avert Jesus from the cross. The first, as I said, was that third temptation in Matthew 4. Worship me, you can have all the glory now. Avoid the cross, avoid suffering. And now, very explicitly, this will never happen to you. And after this conversation that Jesus has with Peter, as Jesus is fast approaching the cross, he spoke of Satan several times to his disciples, and in each case he spoke of the devil in terms of Jesus' conquest over him. Don't turn there. Just listen. John twelve thirty one. Now judgment is upon this world. The word now. Right now, Jesus is saying, at the cross, judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Do you see the language of conquest? Even in light of this very strong language, the ruler of this world. On the cross, Jesus was going to cast out Satan. This would signal the decisive defeat of Satan. In John 14.30, Jesus again speaking to his disciples, this time in the upper room, he says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He is coming. The opportune time is now. He is coming. How is he coming? He is coming through Judas. He is coming, Jesus says. He is not ignorant of his schemes, but he says, he has nothing on me. He has no power over me. He is not sovereign over me. And then finally, John 16, 11, the same upper room discourse, the ruler of this world has been judged. Again, the language of conquest. Now listen to this. While Jesus is saying these words of conquest over the devil to his disciples, at the very same time, the devil is actively coming against Christ. He is actively in that very moment seeking the destruction of Christ. We know this because of John 13 in verse 2 and in verse 27. Turn there with me. This is the beginning of the upper room. Jesus is with his disciples. This is Thursday evening of Passion Week. They're celebrating the Passover. 
And in John 13, too, we gain a tremendous insight about what was happening behind the scenes. John 13, 2 says, During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. And so what that verse is indicating is that for some time now, the devil has been enticing Judas to betray Jesus. This is not something that just happened out of nowhere. It has been an ongoing enticement. But if you skip down to verse 27 of John 13, we learn that on this occasion, the final decision is made to execute the plan. Look at verse 27. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. That is Judas. Satan enters into this man. What a strong statement. But even still, note the stress of authority on the part of Jesus. Verse 27b, therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Get it over with. Do it. Jesus is not panicking. He is not out of control. He is not trying to get a handle on things that are off track, so to speak. Later that evening, Judas would lead the arresting party to Jesus, and Jesus said to them in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. He is sort of mocking them because they come with swords and clubs, all this weaponry. It's like a hundred group, a hundred people in this arresting party. And he says, You never did anything like this when I was with you in the temple. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. The power of darkness. That's Satan. So what Jesus is saying on this very moment when he is under arrest is that the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the suffering, the crucifixion, all of it was an exhibition of the power of darkness. This was Satan's full-scale attack on Christ. This was the hour of darkness. But I don't know if you've noticed, but something very interesting is happening here. Very interesting. Earlier, Satan tried to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. But now, what is he doing? He is actively seeking to put Jesus on the cross. So why this change of strategy? Before, he says, through Peter, this will never happen to you. And then, through Judas, he goes and leads the arresting party to arrest Jesus. Why this change of strategy? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. But let me give you some possible suggestions. Maybe the devil wagered that if he could bring such affliction to Jesus in his arrest, in his betrayal, in his trial, that Jesus would change his mind about the cross. If he could make it so utterly painful... Jesus, when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, would pray, My Father, let this cup pass from me, and he would leave out that part, yet not as I will, but as you will. Maybe that's what he is scheming. Or maybe the devil overestimated the loyalty of the Jewish people to Jesus. He may have thought that if he could get Jesus arrested, that the Jewish people would protest, that they would riot, and Jesus would be released, and thus he would avoid the cross. Or maybe the devil knew that he couldn't prevent Jesus from the cross, so he determined to make it as painful for him as he possibly could. There is no pain like betrayal. There is no pain like defection, which marks all of these apostles. But what we do know is that the strategy at this moment on the part of Satan is to get Jesus to the cross. And when it comes to the atonement of Christ, when we think about the death of Christ, we ask the question, why did Jesus die on the cross? Why? If someone were to ask you that, what would you say? If someone in your workplace or your neighbor were to ask you, you know, I heard about Jesus dying on the cross. Why did he die on the cross? Well, the answer that you should give is that he died on the cross to suffer the wrath of God for our sin in our place. But the Bible also gives other reasons. And one of them has to do with the devil. One of the reasons why Jesus died on the cross has to do with the conquest of Satan. 
Listen to 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil, to make conquest over the enemy. And what does this take us back to but Genesis 3.15, the very first promise of the gospel in the Bible, when God promised that one day the seed of the woman that is Christ, that he would crush the serpent's head. He would defeat the enemy. And this is a picture of what Christ did on the cross. On the cross, on the one hand, Jesus suffers the wrath of God in our place, But on the other hand, it is Christ crushing the serpent's head. So again, the cross of Christ was the decisive victory over Satan. Now, I know our time is very short, so quickly turn with me to Colossians 2.15. I can't pass this verse up because it spells out in such articulate terms the defeat of Satan by the cross of Christ. Colossians 2.15 And speaking of the death of Christ, the very last words of verse 14, having nailed it to the cross, talking about our debt, our sin debt. In verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's a phrase referring to Satan and his demons, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So Satan has in his hand a weapon. A very powerful weapon. You know what that weapon is? It is death. It is death. He introduced death into the world. He has that weapon in his hand. But what Colossians 2.15 says is that when Christ died on the cross, it was as if Jesus removes that weapon from the hand of Satan. He disarms him. He disarms the rulers. And then the picture in verse 15 He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The picture, beloved, is of a triumphal military procession in which the victorious general would lead his defeated captives in a victory parade through the streets. And that is exactly what we have here. In this case, Jesus is pictured as the victorious general who is conquered the devil and his demons, and they are being paraded around in utter defeat for the world to see. So he is defeated. So the devil and the demons can't stop the plan of redemption. They can't stop it at all. When Jesus died, he took away the devil's weapon of death. And so if you know Christ, death is no longer an enemy. It is the pathway to glory. And this is all... True because of the cross. So, beloved, here's what you need to know about your enemy. He has been conquered by Christ. He is a defeated foe. But for now, he's still active. For now, he's still a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is a conquered enemy, but he has not yet been destroyed. His destruction will not come about until the second coming. Revelation 20 talks about Jesus binding Satan for a thousand years in which he will no longer able to deceive the nations. And then following the thousand years we have in Revelation 20, that Satan is cast into the lake of fire where he will remain forever and ever. So for now there remains a real spiritual warfare that we have with Satan and his demons. And Ephesians chapter 6 tells us how we are to engage in this spiritual battle. As we conclude, consider these words from Martin Luther in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I love this hymn. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Our Father, we thank you that Christ was victorious over the temptations of the devil, that he demonstrated his mastery over the demons, 
and also that he conquered Satan on the cross, that the cross of Christ was the decisive victory over our enemy, and that death was taken out of his hand, and that for us in Christ, we have the promise of eternal life, that we will never experience the full consequences of our sin because Christ has taken them away. And Father, we thank you that you are a mighty fortress. And we thank you that Christ is the mighty victorious general who leads his defeated enemies in a victory parade. And we thank you that one day Satan will be destroyed forever. But until then, as we engage in a spiritual warfare, I pray that you would help us, O oh God, to learn how to properly wage this battle. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.